Good morning and welcome to Journey North Church. We're so glad that you're here and as you can plainly see, Tim is not here again today and you get me for one more week. So thank you for coming. Um, I've been blessed to be able to speak to you the last couple weeks and I just want to thank you all for allowing me to be up here. This week we are in part four of a five-part series, uh, hashtag struggles, JNC. We're talking about how do we follow Jesus in a selfie-centered world. In week one, Pastor Tim talked about contentment and doing two things that helps us to be content. The first was killing comparison. This is important because the more we long to be like others and have the same things as other people have, we tend to foster discontentment. And the second thing that he mentioned was cultivating gratitude. If you display envy and bitterness, you are harboring unspiritual and demonic feelings. But if you instead have an attitude of gratitude and celebrate others' blessings and goodwill, you will cultivate a much more contented state of mind and represent that in your being instead. In week two, Pastor Tim talked about relationships and how social media has caused us to lose that face-to-face factor of our relationships. We're introduced to Jesus' new command, or the new covenant, and that is to love one another as Jesus loved us. Pastor Tim gave us a couple ways that we could actively show love. The first one he mentioned was to be present. When you have friends or loved ones that are struggling and they come to you and confide in you for that, take a moment at that time and say a prayer for them. Don't say you'll do it later. Don't do it later. Do it now. Be present in their life at that moment. And the second thing he mentioned was to be engaged. Sometimes just being there in itself is not always enough. Those people need your attention 100% of the time. Those friends need you to be there with everything you have. Put everything else away that distracts you and give them that time that they need at that moment. Last week, I got the opportunity to speak to you about authenticity, being able to see through the filters and the fluff that we create to gain the approval of man. I read from 2 Corinthians where Paul tells the church of Corinth that we need to be unlike Moses and we need to remove the veil. We need to stop hiding who we are and what has happened in our lives, but instead we need to turn to Jesus and remove the veil, and he will remove the veil, and we'll be transformed into his image with everlasting glory. I also made the point that we try hard to impress people with our strengths in our filtered lives, but we fail to build relationships. I challenged you to share your weaknesses and imperfections. Because that's where we find common ground, and from that we build stronger relationships based on authenticity. Next week, I believe we're going to be wrapping up this series, and I say I believe because we know how Tim is with ending things sometimes, (laughs) but I believe we're ending it next week, and Tim's going to be talking to us about making sure we rest and, and taking time to be in solitude, to recover ourselves In a world where we're constantly worried about likes and people approving of us and looking for affirmation, We're mentally exhausted. We're so worried about all these things that we fail to to focus on Jesus. Today, I'm going to start with week four, and we're going to be talking about resurrecting compassion. How do social media and technology propel the spirit of compassion? And how might it hinder compassion? There are many ways that social media can help us make a difference in this world. There are so many different ways when you think about it. We can raise awareness for different ministries and organizations. We can raise money for those said organizations and ministry. We can help raise money for 
for those who need it. Uh, overnight, sometimes things become very popular, and then just as quickly overnight, they disappear. An example of two of how social media makes overnight sensations of topics or events. Um, how many of you remember the old YouTube video of the little baby panda that sneezes and scares its mom all to death? <laughs> right? It's the funniest thing in the world. Or, or the screaming goat that we all see, and you know, <laughs> these are all things that posted once on, on, on any social media venue, they just exploded, right? But there's a not so good side of that as well. How about the Tide Pod Challenge? or the car surfing challenge. These things are ridiculous. The things that become popular, we just don't understand. Um, or there's the for a cause challenges. How many of you got challenged to do the ALS bucket challenge? Right? Yeah. So like, for three or four weeks, that's all that was going on. All you saw in every social media thing was all these different videos of people getting ice dumped on their head, getting water dumped on their head from tractor cup to little tiny cups of water. I, like everybody else, was challenged, and I fulfilled my obligation, and I posted my video with my fifth-grade football team, so it was fun. But the point is, is that before that, nobody was talking about ALS. Nobody was talking about Lou Gehrig's disease, which ALS is. During that time, everybody was talking about it. And then after three or four weeks, as quickly as it came, it was gone, and we didn't hear about it anymore. With all the benefits of social media... Um, I'm here to show you that perhaps there are some negative and downsides to it as well. In fact, the University of Michigan did a comprehensive study on 14,000 college students between the years of 1979 and 2009, so a 30-year span. And what they found out, that there was a drastic decline in empathy. Empathy, if you don't know, is, is the ability to feel compassion for someone else's issues, misfortunes, good or bad. Um, but there was a 40% decline from 1979 to 2009. Now, it's really tragic because as I say this and I look around, I can see some of you kind of, eh, I hope this goes fast, I'm hungry. <laughs> and it just kind of show you that's where our minds sit at this point, where we've become so desensitized to these things that we, we don't have the same compassion that we once had. Well, I was interested in, in how they came up with these numbers. I was wondering what they asked them to to establish that. And as I read through it, they were, the people that were polled had to answer questions rated on a scale of one to five, one being the least, five being the most. And questions they had to answer were, uh, I sometimes try to understand my friends better by looking at things from their perspective. There was a drastic drop of almost 45% from 1979 to 2009. Another statement was, I often have a tender, concerned feeling about people less fortunate than me. Again, almost 40% drop. Fewer people call themselves soft-hearted now than they did 30 years ago. And others' misfortunes just don't seem to bother us as much anymore. In fact, our compassion for others has decreased so dramatically that we're actually experiencing a little bit of the other side of compassion. And there's a really fun German word that explains it exactly. That word is called schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. It means that we derive pleasure from someone else's misfortune. I'll describe this quickly and then I'll move on from it, but many of you will understand what I'm saying. So first, remember last week when we were talking about the fact that they've created jargon for the internet because there's so much stuff happening in social media that they have this jargon? Well, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about clickbait. Clickbait. So clickbait is something that is created to make us want to click on a link to view what's going to happen. 
So while you're scrolling through Facebook or Twitter or whatever your social media choice is, you might see a headline that says, man tries to cross river, but wait till you see what happens. Or you might be a political hack and you might see Trump is challenged by a woman on his immigration policy. She's quickly humiliated. And then you click on that one to see what happens. It is written to tap our sense of, shod- to tap our sense of schadenfreude so that we click on that because we really want to see what happens to that person, even if it's bad. We want to see what happens. That raises the question as to why are we caring so much less? And there are a lot of theories, but experts firmly believe that it's caused by the rise of social media. And I want to to raise the question, why and how would that happen? And I'll show you three possible ways that social media could cause us to care less. The first way now, if you're taking notes, that social media can cause us to care less is we have to admit that we are far more obsessed with ourselves today than ever before. So we are far more obsessed with ourselves. Like I said last week, the whole idea of taking a camera and turning it on ourselves is just, it's just not a normal thing, but this is commonplace in everybody's life now. It's just not normal. So we're completely obsessed with ourselves. Studies show, and this is interesting to me, that when people go on social media, 80% of what we do involves us directly. In other words, if I'm going on social media, I'm going to see what I'm interested in. What you're saying about me, did you like my picture, did you comment on it? About 80% of what we see on social media directs related, or directly relates to us. And when we're viewing stuff that directly relates to us, our body releases, releases a little chemical called dopamine. Dopamine, which Tim taught us, creates pathways, right? So we've talked about this a little bit in the past. Dopamine creates pathways. And therefore, since we're looking at stuff dealing with ourselves and dopamine is being created or released in our bodies, we're actually training our bodies to be more self-centered. Social media can cause us to care less about other people because now our bodies are literally transforming to become more self-centered. The second reason that social media can cause us to create less or to care less is that there's an overwhelming exposure to suffering that desensitizes us. The more pain we see, oftentimes it's harder to care. An example of this is years ago on TV, there was the commercials of the starving African children with the flies buzzing around their head. Every time that would come on, I, would, I, I was heartbroken and I was guilty, and I would turn the channel, and it's because I didn't want to sit there looking at these poor kids in my nice house with my warm, you know, with my warm clothes and food and know that there was nothing I could do for all of those people. Um, In fact, now to this point, I've seen these type of pictures so much that they really just don't bother me anymore. I've seen picture after picture or post after post, depending upon what it is, that we see these hungry kids and we just don't have the same compassion for them as we used to because we've been desensitized to it. Also, experts are saying that because we see everything on a timeline, one post, one post, a news story, another post, Here's a link. Because we see things on a timeline, our brain doesn't know how to differentiate what's more important than the other. So you may be scrolling through your newsfeed and you'll come across a recipe for guacamole. And that'll be followed by a story about another football player who beat his girlfriend. Followed by a funny cat video. Followed by a link about a reporter being beheaded in another nation miles and miles away from us. And literally, our brain doesn't do well in distinguishing between those because 
they're in a particular order on the screen and our brain doesn't justify them one way or another. There's no more importance one over the other. And because of that equalness, we're not able to establish what's more important. So we begin to care less. The third way that technology can cause us to care less is that we flat out have a lack of personal interaction. And that makes it a lot easier to not care. For example, if you lose your job and you post on Facebook, what am I going to do? I'm going to say, hey, sorry for your loss. I'll pray for you. And then I'll go about my day and I will maybe pray for them. Or more realistically, I'll forget about it until the next time I see it. And that's just what we'll do because that's the life that we've turned into. However, if we're sitting across from each other at a table and you tell me that you lose your job and I can see the pain in your face as you're telling me that you just had to tell your daughters that they can no longer go to dance class and you have to pay your mom's stay at the nursing home and you have your own mortgage and you have no idea how you're going to be able to pay for your mom at the nursing home, let alone pay for your own mortgage. If I can see that pain, I'm moved to a very deep place in my heart and I care deeply for you in a way that I would not from a distance. It's easier to disconnect from a distance and when we relate to others based on what we see through social media, we actually end up caring less. Now, in all fairness, I know that that's a lot of social media bashing and a lot of meaningless info, but sometimes in order for us to understand that we have a problem or what we need to change, we need to hear it. We need to hear precisely what it is we're doing wrong. I know that we're not all making the same mistakes. I understand that. But we are all responsible for our own issues. And as Christians, we're called to help our brothers and sisters through their struggles as well. So what's the challenge with this? We do need to understand that as Christians or followers of Christ, that God calls us to do much, much more. Compassion counts. And what I want to do is give you a couple points to drive us through this, this topic. And when we're done, we'll just let the Holy Spirit speak to us in a way that I believe will make a difference in all of your lives and how God is in it. The first thing I want you to fill in, if you're taking notes, is this. We need to understand that true compassion demands action. True compassion demands action. In fact, the Greek word that's translated as compassion is the word splonknizomai. It's a fun word, so we're getting a language lesson today. Schadenfreude and splonknizomai. <laughs> and let me tell you what the word means. Splonknizomai means to be so moved by something, you feel it in your stomach. That's a pretty descriptive explanation, right? When you're aching on your inside for somebody else. It's also similar to the, mean, the words of, of deep sympathy. If you're, if you're hurting for somebody who's lost somebody, or if you've lost somebody and you're expressing the sympathy, that's what splonknizomai means. The word splonknizomai also indicates this meaning as well. It means to be moved to action to be moved to action. This is so powerful because it shows us that it's not just an emotion. Compassion is an action. True compassion demands action. The next thing for you to fill in is, is this. To say that you care but not act is to not care at all. Is to not care at all. So if you say, yeah, 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 I care, I do care but then to do nothing about it 
is literally the same as not caring at all. An example, if you're scrolling through Facebook and you see a post of something bad happened to one of your friends, you like it because that's what we do. And then you scroll through a little bit more and you run across another example of another one of your friends going through a struggle. You like it. This time you post, be praying for you. And then you forget. And you move on with your day because that's what we do. We just are missing the point of what we're supposed to be doing. Caring is not clicking. Caring is acting. Caring is not clicking on something. It's actually being involved to make a difference. Caring is not liking a post, but it's loving a person. It's being moved from the depths of your soul to get out of yourself, to get involved in the life of someone else. In fact, it's amazing to me that when we look at the life of Jesus, every single time you see the word compassion in the Gospels as it relates to Jesus, it's always represented by a corresponding action. Every single time. Anytime in the Gospels, when you see Jesus was moved with compassion, every time you'll see an action. Because he felt something, therefore he did something. Let me give you a few examples. First example is from Mark chapter 1, verses 40 and 41. It says, A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can heal me. And make me clean, he said. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said. Be healed. He was moved with compassion, or splonknizomai. Therefore, he acted. Jesus reached out and he did what? He touched the man, correct. And he was healed. In Matthew 14, we learn about Jesus feeding the 5,000 men. But that wasn't even the first miracle of the day. It says, when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. He had compassion, splonknizomai on them. So what did he do? He healed the sick. He didn't say, be praying for y'all, hope you have a good day. (laughs) He fell for them. Therefore, he was moved into action. In Matthew 20, 29 through 34, it tells of a time when Jesus is leaving Jericho with his disciples, and along the road there were two blind men. The men cried out to Jesus, and Jesus replied, asking them what they wanted. They replied that they wanted their sight. So, what did Jesus do? In verse 34, it says this Jesus had compassion on them, and he touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. True compassion demands action. To say you care but not act is literally the same as saying you don't care at all. And it's tragic that we live in a society that would care 40% less about people. And that's unacceptable. I believe that in God's church, to sit by and do nothing when people are in need is not, is not okay. We need to take action. So here's the bottom line for me in this whole situation Maybe you're the same, maybe you're not, but I think, to be honest, the more I obsess about things on social media, you know, did you like my picture, did you like my special moment, the more I obsess over special media, the more I care about me 
and the less I care about other people. But the more I obsess about Jesus, want to know him, serve him, get close to him, the less I care about me. Suddenly, I'm going to deny myself and I'm going to take up my cross. In other words, I'm literally dying to myself and I'm following him. The more I get close to Jesus, the less I care about myself. And strangely, the more I care about others. So I want you to think about this and and, and really think about it. When was the last time you've given a whole day or maybe a weekend to serve somebody else? When was the last time you've gone significantly out of your way to give financially, not because it's what's expected, but because you thought it was going to make a difference in somebody's life? When was the last time you did, didn't do something that you really wanted to do because you went and invested your time in somebody else? A lot of you will say, I've done that recently. And praise God for you. That's awesome. I'm so happy. That's, that's, that's the example that we need. But at the same time, many of you, you're struggling to remember the last time that it happened. And it might suggest that maybe you're not quite as close to Jesus as you think. Because when you really are close to Jesus, life is not about us. It's not, it is about glorifying him and loving others. Compassion demands action. So what I want to do in the rest of the time that I have with you is I want to bring some of this to application. I want you to understand how we can recognize compassion, display compassion, receive compassion. The first thing I want you to notice is this. Compassion interrupts. Compassion interrupts. When you look at Jesus, you're going to see time and again that he was interrupted by needs. Let me give you three different examples. From Mark chapter 6, 31 through 34, Jesus and his disciples had been working their tails off doing ministry. They were exhausted. They were fried. In fact, the gospel says that they hadn't even been able to eat because it had been such a long day. Then, in, in, in verse 31, it says, Then because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have the chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So Jesus says to these guys, Let's go take a break. Let's go get some rest. He was already showing compassion for his disciples. He was acknowledging their hard work. He understood that they weren't like him. They needed a little bit of downtime. I don't know if you've ever been like this, but if you're just like, I need some me time. I need some time to decompress from all this overstimulation. I need to read a book. I need to just veg out and take a nap. That's where Jesus was for his disciples. In verse 32 and 33, it goes on and says this. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Man, this guy and his buddies can't catch a break, right? You just hope that the boat ride was long enough that maybe they got a few Zs along the way. Because as we go into verse 34, it says, When Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them 
Because they were like sheep without a shepherd, so he began to teach them many things. So even though Jesus wanted some more downtime, remember they hadn't even eaten, he got up and he taught them. Because that's when you do when you're moved with compassion. You do something, you act. Jesus was interrupted in his me time and he said, I'm going to go serve them. In Luke chapter 8, 40 through 47, we read the story of Jesus on his way to heal a dying girl. That's a pretty important thing. But along the way, he's interrupted by another woman who comes up and touches his robe, and she's instantly healed of a 12-year affliction. In verse 48, it says, Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. So on his way to do what God wanted him to do, Jesus stopped to see that God wanted him to do something else. He was interrupted, and instead of rushing on, he showed compassion. He acted, and because of the woman's faith, she was healed. And one last and crazy story of interruption. Uh, I'm going back into Mark chapter 2. Jesus has returned to Capernaum, and he's teaching to a packed house, so full that it's overflowing out the doors. These four crazy men are trying to get their paralyzed friend into the house, but they can't do it because of the crowd. Instead, they get up on the roof, and they start clawing their way through the roof, trying to make a hole large enough to lower their friend down through to see Jesus. So as Jesus is teaching, suddenly things are falling on his head, and does he get all bent out of shape? Does he, does he yell for security, come get these guys? Does he say, stop it, I'm busy? No, no, he doesn't. In, chat, or in verse 5 and in verse 11, shows us the compassion of Jesus once again. It says in verse 5, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. And then it goes into verse 11 where it says, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Once again, Jesus is interrupted, but instead of frustration or irritation, he is compassionate and he acts. He first forgave the man's sins, and then he cures him of paralysis. One of the most powerful stories that I've ever been a part of, where I actually got to experience God's compassion time and again, took place almost exactly 25 years to date. Uh, in April, on April 19th, 1995, Uh, The Alpha P. Mira building in Oklahoma City was the site of the worst American terrorist attack to date. 168 people died, 18 of which were children that were at a daycare. This act was in no way compassionate, but what happened in the hours and the days and the weeks that followed were expressly compassionate. There was a church that was a couple of miles away from the detonation site that served as ground zero for the families that either won had experienced direct loss as a result of the explosion, or two, were waiting for words of the loved ones that were still missing. The name of that church was the First Christian Church of uh, Midway City, Oklahoma. And I'd like to read to you an excerpt from the LA Times from April 26, 1995. It says, Oklahoma City, April 26, 1995. They arrive early in the morning and keep a grim vigil well into the evening, reluctantly leaving the vast but crowded church dining room only at the insistence of counselors urging them to go home and get some rest. 
The rare exception comes when a family is gently told by a deferential counselor that it's time to go upstairs. Those gut-wrenching words mean only one thing. The wait is over. Their loved one has been found and identified in the wreckage of the bomb-blasted building. Everyone knows all, plain, all too plainly about the room on the fourth floor of the First Christian Church. It is where families went to get the news. Some stayed for 15 minutes, others had to stay for hours. They all knew what it meant when somebody came up to them and said that it was time to go upstairs, said Eric Kramer, a professor of communications. A special telephone line had been set up linking the church to the state medical examiner's office downtown. It serves as a direct and immediate pipeline whenever an identification had been made. To while away the hours, the dreadful hours, families have been chatting in a well-provisioned hall, quickly embracing strangers as if they were lifelong friends, now bound together in their shattering sorrow. Hoping against hope as rescuers pressed their deepest but methodical search into the ruins. Nearly 200 people with loved ones still classified as missing continued gathering each day at the First Christian Church, several miles away from the bombing site. They found a community, Kramer said. They are sharing a lot with each other, and most of them have bonded and made friends for life. When Beth Newberry, a Batesville, Arkansas woman, whose daughter is believed to be in the rubble, began making decorative ribbons with a gold-plated guardian angel, other women quickly gathered in and asked to help. Before long, a production line was formed, and hundreds upon hundreds of such three-colored ribbons were being delivered downtown for rescue workers to wear. Now, the reason why I read this to you is because, excuse me, <coughs> is uh, I was at that church the very day that this article was released. It was an overcast and drizzly day. It was gloomy and it was depressing. The story that leads up to me being there is a fun story, but that's a story for another day. Um, but as we, I was part of an acapella group, professional acapella group, and uh, it's another story for another day, that's what I was saying. As we were being led into this church, I personally witnessed a family of four being led up those stairs to the fourth floor. I soon found out why. They were being as we were being escorted into a large dining room, it was a gathering area that was surrounded on three sides with big glass walls. Our group had been allowed to go in there and sing a few songs to these people. We were there, we met a few people, we even got to meet the, the monkey, the spider monkey that was there for the kids to, to relax and play around with. It was, it, was, it was quite a setting. We began singing our first song, a rendition, a rendition of The Old Rugged Cross. It was a very sobering moment as we looked at all the faces as we sang, and there were tears flowing and hearts were broken. When we ended that song, we were asked to sing something a little more upbeat. Our escort, who was taking us around, was, was a longtime Oklahoma City chaplain, Oklahoma City Police Department chaplain. And his favorite song of all times was Brown Eyed Girl by Van Morrison. So it is urging, we, we sang that. After that song was over, we actually got to meet a few of those ladies that they're talking about that were making the ribbons. And unfortunately, they had just sent their most recent batch out to be given away, so they didn't have any at the church at that moment, and they were waiting for more parts to come. We were, of course, honored to just be there, um, and we were expecting nothing from them. That's not what we got. 
<clears throat> we went into our next song, a song called I Can See Clearly Now. It's a song by Johnny Nash. This song was going fine, and then we got to the bridge of the song. This is where I got to truly experience a miracle and the example of God's compassion for the first time. The lyrics of the bridge of the song go like this. Look all around, there's nothing but blue skies. Look straight ahead, nothing but blue skies. Now, remember as I started this story, I said that it was an overcast, a drizzling day, it was rainy, it was gloomy outside and depressing. At the very moment we sang that first look all around, there's nothing but blue skies, God showed up in a big, big way. At that very second, the skies parted and the brightest and warmest sunshine that you can imagine shone down into that hall where we were all at. We lost it. <laughs> Literally, we were crying like babies. It was, it was amazing. And just like God sent the rainbow for Noah, he sent the sunshine for us to show us his love for everybody that was in that hall. But God wasn't through with us yet. After we finished singing, or what resembled singing at that point, <clears throat> a few kids came up to us, and they handed us each a safety pin that had rainbow-colored ribbons on it with beads. And we asked them what they were. The kid that had handed them to us said they're called hope ribbons. Like the hope that the rainbow gives, the safety pins represented hope that people's families would be found alive in the rubble. I asked the kid if he was a volunteer because I thought that was a pretty awesome thing to do. But here's where God's compassion shone through again. That kid, that kid told me that he had just lost his mother in the explosion and that he wanted to be there helping everybody else that was losing people at a time of complete and utter devastation in his life. That kid didn't just sit back. He acted. He didn't say that he was going to think about all those people. He didn't say that he'd pray for them and then forget. He acted. And for the second time in just as many minutes, we were all blubbering again. These adjustments in our lives, the changes that, we, that are made for us, the interactions that we had with these people, none of it would have happened had we not let the Holy Spirit just intervene and take over and interrupt us. When we pray for what we want, we tend to pray for God's divine intervention. We pray that God will intercede on our behalf. But if we prayed to know what God wanted us to do and we kept our hearts open to that, we would realize that God often works through divine interruption. To say that you care but not act is to not care at all, right? Compassion interrupts. And when it does, act on it. Don't just respond to a post or a tweet with some passive cliche. Actually press or pray for the person. Actually call them and see what you can do to help. Get out from behind the screen and show compassion face to face. The second way that we can recognize compassion is that compassion costs. Compassion costs. In Luke 10, 30-37, Jesus tells the compelling story of the Good Samaritan guy who actually helps a Jewish guy. In fact, he goes way out of his way to help someone that probably would have otherwise hated him. The story starts with a priest and a Levite traveling along the same road as the Jewish man. However, when they come upon this man lying on the side of the road, 
they both cross over to the other side and pass him by without so much as a, how are you doing? Then comes along the Samaritan. Not only does he stop, but he displays extreme compassion. He bandages the guy up, picks up the bloody guy, puts him on his donkey, and takes him into an inn. And then in verse 35 it says, The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. A single denarii was roughly equivalent to a one-day wage for a laborer. And this guy goes and pays two days of his own earnings to the hotel manager, owner, so that he can stay there. I mean, how many of us would take two days of our wages to pay for a complete stranger? Not too many, right? His compassion cost him. Too often in our culture, we want to do a drive-by type compassion. We want to do what's easy for us, but, what, but not do what might be inconvenient. Okay, I'll click on that. I'll retweet that. I'll like this. I'll favorite that. I'll even share a link. That's all easy. It doesn't cost us anything. True compassion generally costs us something. And that's the thing. Clicking is clean. Compassion is going to be messy. And that's the beauty in that. When you get outside of yourself and you follow what God leads you to do, you think it's one thing you're supposed to do and then suddenly it's another. And as you do that, you're led into another whole thing that you never saw coming. So some of you, you'll be moved to compassion like this. And you're going to do something and it's not going to be clean. Maybe it's time that you, you step up and lead a step study because you know that you have friends that need that guidance. It may become complicated as realizations occur and healing begins. Or maybe you decide to serve in one of our youth ministries and you're, you're captured and enamored by this 12, 13, 14, or 12-year-old child who's, who's self-hating and cutting or, or maybe worse. It's complicated. Or you've decided <clears throat> that you're going to foster and you fall in love with a kid and then you have to give that kid back and your heart is going to break. You're going to serve a purpose in that child's life, but it's going to be difficult. But that's what compassion does. It costs. It interrupts. It costs and then it changes lives. Compassion changes lives. Everywhere Jesus went, when he was moved with compassion, he changed lives. Compassion is to ache from the inside for somebody else. Yet in our society, we, we couldn't care less about this. And that's unacceptable in a church that represents the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we, the church, we need to step up and we need to act on this. Please bow your heads. Father, I thank you that your spirit is speaking to people today and I thank you in advance for all the lives that will be impacted when we are moved with compassion. Like Jesus, into action for your glory and to serve other people. As a society, we definitely care less about others, but that won't be us. That will not be your church. Today, if you want to give the spirit permission to speak to you and say yes, Make me more compassionate. 
please, in the quiet of your mind, repeat these words with me. God, I give you permission. Interrupt me. If it costs me, that's even more beautiful because, God, I want, to, I want you to use me to care for others, to show your love, and to change lives. Heavenly Father, today I surrender my life to you. I believe Jesus died for me and he rose again so I could live for you. Fill me with your spirit that I could know you. Forgive me of my sins so that I can serve you. Thank you for your grace and for your love and for my new life. Today I give you my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please stand for the last song. Awesome. All right, if you prayed today that God makes you more compassionate or you chose to surrender your life to Christ for the first time, please know that you're not alone in your decision. Please take a minute to complete this card, which is available back at the uh, guest services desk, and drop it in the joy box or give it to somebody that's wearing a badge and got a happy smile on their face. If you need prayer, if you need a Bible, those are both available right there. Prayer back in the corner. There's a little room. Merit is standing back there. Just go back there and we'd be glad to follow up with you. If today you experienced a little splonk needs of mine and you feel like it's time to step up in faith and have more compassionate heart for others, amen. You are needed. It will be costly. And trust me, you will be interrupted. But with God's grace and support, you will make a difference for the kingdom. And remember, next week, Tim will be back, and he'll be teaching to you about rest. In the meantime, I want to thank you all for lending me your ears, your hearts, and your minds, and allowing me to stand up and talk to you for a while. It's been great, so thank you. Please bow your heads for the final prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your compassion for us. Thank you for setting the standard so high and never backing down. I pray that every heart that has been changed by this message will show compassion beyond anything that we can comprehend. Thank you for sending Jesus to show us the ultimate act of compassion. I pray that we keep that example in our mind as we are challenged to be compassionate. It is in your son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.